Welcome to Health Hackers. Thank you for being here. It is a pleasure to have you and it is also a pleasure to thank the sponsors of this episode. Glycanage, a science-based lab test you can take at home that estimates your biological age or what some may call your true age. Regular viewers, you might recognize the name Glycanage after my video review of my experience last summer. And by the way, you can still get 15% off your own home test kit using the code HEALTHHACKERS at the Glycanage checkout. Since making my review video, the company and I stayed in touch, and now I'm thrilled to be able to call Glycanage a current sponsor of Health Hackers. Head to glycanage.com to find out more about their test kits. And if you missed my review of Glycanage, the link to the video is in the summary text that goes with this episode. Thank you, Glycanage, for supporting Health Hackers. Now, over to the latest guest interview. This is episode 59. My special guest today is Dr. Cindy M. Duke, known to her fans and followers as America's only dual fertility expert and virologist. Dr. Cindy is the founding physician and director of the Nevada Fertility Institute in Las Vegas. She's also a scientific advisor to medtech and femtech startups, a business strategist for healthcare professionals, and the host of the Girl Powered Success and Survival International podcast, a show highlight dynamic career paths of women and girls. For the next 30 minutes at least, we will be making the most of Dr. Cindy's reproductive and virology expertise to get a breakdown of things to know when pregnancy has not happened the old-fashioned way. We're going to be talking about next steps, fertility treatments, how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the infertility journey, and more. Before we begin, a quick note to new viewers and listeners, anything you hear on Health Hackers should not be considered personal or medical advice. You know the score, always talk to your health provider about your concerns. Dr. Cindy, welcome. Hi, Gemma. Well, uh, thank you for having me. This is quite an honor and I'm excited. <laughs> well, thank you. And first up, let's address this because I'm about to turn 37. Is it true that fertility drops off a cliff after the age of 35? Well, I wouldn't say it falls off a cliff, but indeed the your chance of pregnancy steadily declines with age. Um, and it definitely takes a turn in terms of egg age and egg quality by 35. But it's not off a cliff. At 37, you still have very, very good chances of pregnancy. And so it's not meant to scare you, but certainly we should be mindful that when we're born, we have all the eggs we'll ever half of the rest of our life in our ovaries. And as we age, those numbers decline so that by the time we're 30, 70% of the eggs we're born with are gone. And by the time we're 40, 97% of the eggs are gone. So what that really means is between 30 and 40, we lose about 27% of the 30% of eggs that were remaining after 30. So it, it's a fast drop, but it's not like, oh, you're coasting and then 35, boom, you're off the cliff. It's just a steady decline from 70% to 97% gone by 40. And what are a woman's chances of conceiving each month when she is fertile and healthy? Well, so the chances also vary with age. Um, it 
it's multifactorial, right? So when we talk about chances of pregnancy, unfortunately, historically, we've really emphasized egg age, so the age of the woman. Um, but sperm also factors in. But if we were to assume normal sperm for this conversation, meaning on team analysis, the sperm, we have a lot of sperm, they're moving well, they're shaped normally, then it's really dependent as long as her fallopian tubes are open, she's having regular unprotected intercourse uh, up until age 35, you know, by 25, for example, your chance is about 22% per month. By 35, we're dropping down to 10% or so. And by 40, we're down to like 2% chance of pregnancy in any month. You're trying, assuming everything else is healthy. And so that's where investigations to make sure everything else is healthy are important. And it's also why we have definitions to help people maximize their times of trying. So, you know, we define infertility as if someone's under 35, trying regular unprotected intercourse every other day around the time of ovulation for a year. If you haven't conceived, you should definitely get checked out. It doesn't mean you need fertility treatments necessarily, but you just wanna make sure all the parts are working. If you're 35 or older, we say do that for six months. After six months of regular unprotected intercourse around the time of ovulation, if you're not pregnant, then get an evaluation. And we even go so far as saying at 40, if you're having regular unprotected intercourse for three months and haven't conceived, get an evaluation. Because at that point, you're working with a very small number of eggs and every month counts. So with your patients who are trying to conceive, what top tips do you give them to maximize their chances of succeeding when they're trying to get pregnant the natural unassisted way? Well, the first thing I like to tell people is just look at your lifestyle, right? So that means your general everyday activities. What are you putting into your body in terms of what you eat, what you drink, how you store your foods in terms of containers, how you cook your food in terms of cookware, and of course, looking at your cosmetics and other beauty products that you use. So for my patients, when I talk with them in terms of lifestyle, you know, we talk about healthy weight. And so we know that a certain body fat percentage is required for someone's hormones and reproductive hormones to function adequately. So we're really talking about the extremes of weight. We don't want you being too slim, meaning too low body fat percentage. But at the same time, we also know that excess body fat can also lead to disrupted signaling when it comes to your reproductive hormones. And so in that regard, we also try to tighten that up. So my rule of thumb is I say we target a 12% or so body fat on the leaner end and no more than a 30% body fat percentage on the fluffier end. And indeed, um, if someone has extra body fat, then we work hard to lose somewhere between five to 10% of body fat, because we know that losing five to 10% of body fat, if you are on the extra side of body fat percentage, actually does positively influence your ability to ovulate and conceive. And so those are some of the things we talk about when it comes to weight. We talk about diet. It's really important that you have a balanced diet. Um, I think a lot of people, as they start looking at fad diets, cut out essential nutrients. They cut out things like their healthy fats. But the truth is our hormones are built on fat. In fact, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, 
all of those key hormones that are important for reproduction actually are formed from cholesterol. And so you do need to have healthy cholesterol, healthy fats in your diet. So I talk to people about that. We talk about having adequate amount of proteins in the diet. We talk about any underlying illness that might be going on or condition. So for example, if someone has like polycystic ovary syndrome, if they maybe have fibroids, if they maybe have endometriosis, and then tying in those conditions to different dietary and nutritional needs and figuring out what might be triggering their condition that can then lead to fertility problems or not and addressing that. Uh, we talk about water intake. We talk about sleep. Believe it or not, most of us don't sleep enough. And yet sleep is so important, Gemma, when it comes to how our hormones function and how our body is prepared for pregnancy and achieving pregnancy. So when someone is trying to conceive on their own or unassisted, these are all the things I like to talk about. And then in terms of storage containers and food additives, we're really looking at things we call endocrine disruptors, which is there are things in our environment that can negatively impact how our bodies work, especially how our testicles and our sperm function. And so when you're looking at that, you want to ask yourself, okay, what are you eating? How are you storing your food? If you microwave food, is it in plastic or using glass or ceramic, which is preferred? If you're cooking your food, are you cooking in um, cast iron, stainless steel, enamel, versus are you using the plastic shiny nonstick coated pots, which we try to encourage people to avoid? Because it's not cooking once, that's the problem. It's if you're using these things long-term over time, you could be systematically, repeatedly exposing yourself to small doses of toxins, which our bodies don't usually know how to dispose of. And so it just stores them and sequesters them in our reproductive organs, our hormonal system, and that can disrupt a lot of our messaging. So that's what I talk to people about. We talk about supplements, making sure you have enough folate in your diet. Uh, folate, folic acid is one of the B vitamins. It's a critically important vitamin when it comes to reproduction for uh, the formation of the brain and spinal cord in a baby. So we talk about that. If someone maybe has heavier periods than usual, we make sure they're getting enough iron supplementation and likewise vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D is actually a hormone that most of us make under our skin, but we don't know that. So uh, vitamin D is really important for a lot of our everyday energetic activities, but it's also important for being able to achieve pregnancy for both the sperm and the ovaries. And then once someone's pregnant, your baby uses your vitamin D to build its bones. So it's really important that we supplement vitamin D. But those are some of the big things I start with with my patients. That's fascinating and so much information. When you mention food storage materials and uh, mm -hmm. cooking pans, what about uh, cosmetics? How about the chemicals in the products we put on our, our bodies? Will you tell us more about that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when we look at chemicals, we're definitely concerned about certain toxins, including hidden toxins, because not every uh, cosmetic company is fully transparent about the ingredients, particularly so the what we call inactive ingredients in their um 
their products. And so there are these chemicals known, for example, as phthalates, some of them are parabens. Um, all these classes of chemicals can be absorbed into our bloodstream and they can and do oftentimes actually interfere with the messaging systems in our body, which a fancy word for the body's messaging system is hormones. And so these can literally negatively impact your hormonal signaling. Some of them, your body actually just, it, it can't do anything about them. So it'll internalize it into cells and just keep it deposited there. So for example, we have more and more studies that show if someone were to actually reduce their exposure to many of these chemicals, they can improve the overall response of their eggs and the quality of their eggs and even their sperm. I mean, this is anecdotal, but I have one patient who for the course of one year, we were doing IVF and we would never get more than two or four eggs. No matter what we did, the response was poor. She took eight months off to really, as she called it, clean up her diet and clean up her lifestyle. She got rid of plastic, started using only glass and ceramic ware. She really looked at her cosmetics, went in her case, vegan and, um, just chemical free, everything all natural, so to speak. And when we repeated her egg retrieval, we literally got 12 eggs in one shot, whereas we could only get one or two. I did not change the protocol, meaning how I stimulated her ovaries. I did not change in that um, almost intervening one year. And She's at this point, I think they've delivered their baby and they still have like four embryos remaining in the freezer from that one cycle. And so I think there's a lot to be said for the impact that our environment has on our bodies, that the food that we eat has on our bodies. And then in terms of our gut health, you know, I like to say go with your gut. And that's because our gut microbiome plays a really big role role and even how it activates our immune system, right? And our immune system, while it's working to serve us, if it's fighting off just one insult after another, it has to activate your inflammatory system. And then that has to do something. And so it can end up working against you, working against how well you can implant an embryo, against how well maybe you respond to hormones if you are having assisted reproductive techniques being used. And so it's really important whether you're planning to try on your own or whether you're planning to get assistance, seek assistance, that you try your best to just optimize as much as you can. I'm not asking people to get obsessive over it. I don't need you losing sleep over whether or not you know, you're using enough glass or ceramic or that you've read your cosmetics well enough. But, you know, I think just make it more of a daily conscientious habit, right? Because even if you weren't trying to conceive, if we look at the impact, a lot of these added chemicals and preservatives that are in our foods and our um, cosmetics, what they actually do to our environment in general, 
what they do to our wildlife and the waterways, etc. It's still a tremendous negative impact. And we all have to live on this planet. We still have to engage as inhabitants of this planet. So whether you're planning to reproduce right now or not, I think we do need to be more conscientious about just what we use, what we put on our bodies. Um, recognize anything that you rub onto your skin is likely being absorbed into your body. And once it gets into your body, then your body would do what your body does, which is it's going to try to break it down. If it can't break it down, then it tries to sequester it somewhere. And that's how you should look at it. Is there a list of chemicals that you give your patients and say, avoid those? Yeah, I try not to overwhelm them, but as part of the history taking, I do ask questions about their general activities, what do they like to eat? Um, you know, water source, is there well water where they live? That sort of thing. Um, and I go over a general list of things to be careful of. Um, <clears throat> another big clue is their occupation. I'm here in Las Vegas. And so some people uh, work at some very interesting plants. Some of them are miners or within the mining industry. And so we talk about those things. We talk about whether or not they use adequate PPE, personal protective equipment. I mean, now in the era of COVID, most of us know what PPE means, but you know, for a miner, for some meaning M-I-N-E-R, someone who's mining in heavy metals and so forth, which Nevada is known for, I wanna know how are they protecting themselves from particles that can be you know, inhaled, that can then have an impact on their bodies. Those who work at the various nuclear plants and facilities around here, we talk about that in their radiation exposure, because we know, for example, radiation can have long-term permanent impacts on the DNA in eggs or sperm. And so we talk about all that, absolutely. So it's not a full list, but it's a list based on their occupation, their exposure risk. Yeah, you mentioned IVF and that success story there with one of your patients. I want to come on to IVF shortly. Um, first, I have to ask, I know you're big on myth busting. Now, ca <laughs> can you tell us if this is true? I read that having sex twice in one hour could triple your chance of conceiving. That's a myth. Um, it's, first of all, it's really hard for, well, us you're a better word. It's really difficult for someone who has ejaculated to actually have enough sperm in the second ejaculate all within an hour. In fact, we recommend when trying to conceive that you have intercourse, meaning ejaculatory intercourse once every other day, because you want to give your partner enough time to reaccumulate sperm. An emphasis on sperm, because yes, if someone ejaculates twice in an hour, they will have seminal fluid, so semen twice, but the second one is not going to have a lot of sperm there. And so it's really important to know that. And in fact, you need millions of sperm to be released in the ejaculate to make its way up into the womb, right? So this is a model of a uterus, the vagina, the fallopian tubes and the ovaries with intercourse, when semen is ejaculated in the cervix here, the vagina, it has to swim up the sperm through the vagina into the uterus to the top of the womb and then across into the fallopian tube. And so um, in fact, 
when someone ejaculates, the sperm is in the very beginning part of the ejaculate. There isn't that many sperm in the trailing fluid. And the same goes with they were to ejaculate again within the same hour. So, uh, myth. Wow. I'm learning so much. And listeners of the podcast, you'll have to check out the YouTube video to see Dr. Cindy's model there showing you what she was talking about. Um, now, so you mentioned earlier that a couple might go and have an evaluation if they haven't been able to get pregnant. So when they turn up at that doctor or medical provider's facility and they say, we can't get pregnant, what typically happens next? Do they undergo specific tests? They do. And so it's really important. I love that we're saying they, because unfortunately, culturally, the burden of achieving pregnancy and fertility is often placed on the person who has the ovaries and the uterus. Um, if we're talking in a heteronormative way, we're talking about a woman, right? And a female patient. And so oftentimes that's who shows up first for evaluation. Yet we happen to know if we're speaking of heterosexual couples, 50% of the time, if they're struggling to conceive, it involves something going on with the sperm. And so it's really important that both people get evaluated and get evaluated at the beginning. Um, I can't stress enough how many frustrated patients I've seen, you know, whom I've met as a second opinion, they've even undergone prior therapy and treatment that did not work out. And the partner who's making sperm had never been evaluated. And that's a huge disservice. Um, why is it important to check the person who's making sperm? Well, two reasons. One, like I said, it takes two. And 50% of the time, it involves something with the sperm producing partner. But the second is based on the actual physiology and anatomy. So remember I said for women, we're born with all of our eggs. We don't make new ones. Mm -hmm. So egg numbers are fixed. What we have is what we have. And as they're aging, the eggs are aging. However, a person who's making sperm makes sperm every day on a continuous basis, albeit it takes 70 days for sperm to mature. So for example, someone who is starting a new batch of sperm today, March 5th, May 5th, sorry, their sperm won't be ready until somewhere in July. That's when they're gonna ejaculate the sperm that started forming today. So similarly, if someone's ejaculating on any given day, they're actually ejaculating sperm that started forming about 70 days before. But what's important to that in that story, Gemma, is that they're making new sperm. So for example, if I investigated a semen analysis and discovered that the sperm counts were low, there are things I can do to help that person make more sperm. There are things I can do to help them boost the sperm quality, whereas I cannot help the person with the eggs make more eggs because we don't have that technology yet. I don't have technology to renew eggs, but that means if I have a couple and sperm factors are going on, there are lots of things I can do to restore sperm that might end up saving you the need to do in vitro, saving you the need to have more um, invasive things done because there's so much we can do to boost sperm. So I like to tell patients, it's actually one of the most cost-effective, it's possibly the most cost-effective step in a fertility evaluation which is having the semen checked, having the semen checked. 
That should be the first step. It's the least expensive anyway, but also the most informative in terms of the high yield results that you can get from it. Um, but in addition to evaluating the partner who's making sperm, we'll always do a test to see how many eggs the person with the ovaries has working with, given that we know we don't make new eggs. So it's always important to know how many are there. And then it's important to check to see, can sperm and egg actually meet in the body? So here comes my trusty uterine model again, right? So like I was showing before, we've got the uterus, we have fallopian tubes. This is looking at it from the back of the uterus and fallopian tubes and ovaries. So think of your fallopian tubes as arms with catcher's mitts on them, right? Think of it as an arm with a catcher's mitt. So the catcher's mitt is what captures the egg when you ovulate and it pulls the egg into the fallopian tube. And that egg will hang around in the fallopian tube for somewhere between 12 to 20 hours waiting to see if it'll encounter sperm. And I like to point that out because every time, at least for me, I remember growing up, every time they showed people trying to get pregnant on TV, the person does an ovulation test and they're like, get here, get here right now. But the truth is the egg hangs around for 12 to 20 hours. So you don't need to endanger yourself <laughs> racing to get home or to get to your partner. You've got, a, you've got some hours. Um, and so the egg hangs around in the fallopian tube after the catcher's mitt pulls it in. And then really if sperm is already there, it will interact with it. Or if you have intercourse anytime within those 12 to 20 hours, sperm and egg will encounter each other. And if they like each other, hopefully fertilization occurs. And at that point, this is the critical step. It's then up to the tiny embryo to roll its way down the fallopian tube and implant in the womb, right? So that's key for everyone to know because even though babies technically start out in the fallopian tubes, they grow in the womb. And so we need to check to make sure that basic path is clear. And so that's what the basic evaluation is, is we'll do a test, which is usually blood test and a quick internal ultrasound to look at the ovaries. And we're checking what we call the ovarian reserve, which is how many total eggs are you working with? We'll check the sperm, which is a semen analysis, and we'll do a dye test called a hysterosalpingogram to look at the place where sperm and egg are supposed to meet. Uh, depending on the person's history, we may also check their thyroid. Uh, at my clinic, we'll check vitamin D because it has such an important role that it plays. And if we're a fertility clinic, most clinics will also draw HIV, hepatitis, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. But that's not necessarily because we're looking for reasons for infertility, but it's more so so that we can start planning for the pregnancy and for baby, if we were to discover any of those were positive, we'd want to treat and prepare for baby being safe and hopefully not exposed to any of those. Got it. So when a, a couple um, have had their tests and everything seems to be looking okay, are there any initial basic level options that you offer those patients that that isn't IVF but it's yeah. like the starter level what would what would they be well you know sometimes the starter level is as basic uh, as foundational as helping people realize when to time intercourse so for example every now and then we have some 
people who actually think ovulation is occurring when the period is happening. So it's really a matter of just helping them reassess and understand physiology and how a menstrual cycle works. Uh, for other patients, it's learning how to count the days of your period. So the truth is, when we count a period length, we're counting from the first day of bright red bleeding, not first day of red spotting. And that's important because if someone is counting only their days of us, um, when they start, if they counted, sorry, when they started spotting, but not bright red bleeding, they're gonna end up counting a longer cycle and they're gonna end up missing their ovulation windows. So for example, if you're someone who spots for three days before you actually have bright red flow, and let's say from the day you have spotting to the next time you start spotting, um, you know, a month later is 35 days, you might be thinking you have a 35 day cycle and that you're ovulating on day 18. And so if you're waiting until that time to have intercourse, you're gonna end up missing your window because actually if you're bleeding three days after, your cycle is, the timing is different. And so you actually have a 32 day cycle, not a 35 day cycle, you know? And so that's one of the things I do is just educating people about their cycle, educating them on timing. Uh, for some of our patients, it's educating them on how to use an ovulation kit so that they can detect. Again, um, a lot of people who are using ovulation predictor kits, they think when the kit turns positive, they're releasing an egg right then and there, or if they're checking their temperature, they're releasing an egg right then and there. But the truth is the temperature rise and the ovulation kit changing color or getting the smiley face usually precedes actual egg release by somewhere between 24 to 40 hours. And so again, if you're only having intercourse at the time of the positive test, you're possibly missing, possibly. I say possibly because Gemma, believe it or not, ejaculated sperm can hang around in the reproductive tract for up to five days. They're very hardy, five days. Mm. But you know, so there's that. And then the other thing is some people, much like that myth you asked me about, they think they need to have sex every hour, every couple hours, every day around the time of ovulation. And that, of course, is too often, too frequent. And so while the partner may be ejaculating, it's not enough sperm. And so we talk more about spacing it out to every other day. Because again, ejaculated sperm survives for up to five days. So if you're refreshing every other day, you're gonna have more than enough sperm around to encounter an egg when the time comes. And so that's the first thing we do. But for others, it may be as simple as, as part of the history, I discovered they're actually not ovulating. They're not having regular periods. And so we may be prescribing them medications, tablets that they take to help them ovulate. And that's all that's needed. You know, We don't need to do insemination or IVF. For others, we need to give them medicine to release eggs, but we also need to do intrauterine insemination. That's IUI. That's where we give medications to time egg release. And then coinciding with egg release, we also prepare semen, prepare sperm, and then introduce that washed sperm into the uterus, right at the top of the uterus, just when we know the egg is coming out. 
That way we shorten the distance the sperm have to travel to find the egg. And we also maximize the interaction between sperm and egg. And so those are all the options before in vitro. I think what I'd like to share as well is the majority of people who conceive from fertility treatments are not conceiving from IVF. They're conceiving from all the other things I just mentioned, including some people needing surgery. So while IVF is the probably the most recognizable treatment offered by fertility specialists and fertility clinics, uh, it only accounts for maybe five to 10% of our total patient population and treatment. For anybody who doesn't know, how would you summarize IVF in terms of its difference from artificial insemination? So IVF is literally taking the eggs from the person with the ovaries and taking sperm from the person with the testicles and putting them together in the laboratory to create an embryo. And then once we have an embryo, we put it back into the womb, right at the place where it's supposed to implant. So the key difference between IVF and everything else we've talked about is with in vitro, we know for sure that sperm and egg meet. Whereas when we're talking about uh, unassisted efforts to conceive or insemination, it's still up to the sperm and egg, like I described earlier, to find each other in the fallopian tube. It's still up to the sperm and egg to like each other for fertilization. And then it's still up to that embryo, if it's fertilized, to roll its way down an implant in the womb. And in vitro, it's more of an active process. We're taking the egg, so we know for sure we have an egg. We're taking the sperm, putting them together in the laboratory, especially if we're doing something called ICSI, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, meaning we're intentionally putting the sperm's DNA into the egg to really improve that chance of fertilization. And then once we have an embryo that is at the right stage for implanting into the womb, we put it into just the right spot where it should be. And that's called um, IVF. And so consequently, IVF presents you with the highest chance of pregnancy at any age for anyone, right? So for example, like I said, at 25, if we you were trying every other month right around the time of ovulation for a year, each month your chance of pregnancy is about 22%. With in vitro, at 25, if we're using 25-year-old eggs, every time we take that fertilized embryo and put it in the womb in a 25-year-old whose eggs were 25, we're talking about an 80% chance of getting pregnant. Wow, what a difference. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the 40-year-old, right? So at 40, like I was saying, it's somewhere around 2% chance of pregnancy on their own. With insemination, we'd probably be able to pull it up to 6 to 8% chance. With in vitro at age 40, if we um, put in one or two eggs, we're, uh, sorry, embryos, fertilized eggs to one or two, we're talking a chance of pregnancy 40, 45%, even 50 plus percent, depending on whether we also did genetic testing on the embryo, whether we did testing to time, what we call the receptivity of the womb for receiving the embryo. And so hands down, IVF at any point presents you with your highest chance of pregnancy. The bigger question is whether you want to do IVF, whether you feel prepared. Uh, going into IVF, I think is a mind 
space of mindset. And so it does require some preparation, but it also requires that everybody understand key to what I just said, in so much as the numbers are so much higher in terms of chances for success, it's not a hundred percent. And yet that is something that everyone doing IVF seems to assume is that IVF is now a 100% guarantee of pregnancy. And so I like to explain that as well, because it's not, unfortunately, but it's way higher, way higher. Yeah, that's really good to know. Really insightful, Dr. Cindy. Um, I really want to ask you about COVID, given your expertise sure. as a virologist. Do we know much about the effects of COVID on an unborn baby if the mother catches COVID during pregnancy? Well, you know, what we're seeing is that it depends, one, on the stage in pregnancy where she was when she uh, contracted COVID. It depends on how sick she was. And as a result, um, if mom's really sick, there might be a need to deliver the pregnancy if it's viable uh, in order to save her life. And so then we have risks related to prematurity, for example, if the baby is then born and having to stay in the hospital, et cetera. But what we do know that's favorable, because this is what everybody worries about, is whether or not it causes birth defects, the answer is no. And that's important to know because we have a number of other viruses, which if you were to get infected while pregnant, they can cause really bad birth defects. So for example, chickenpox, if someone were pregnant and contracted chickenpox, it causes really bad birth defects in their baby. The same for measles. Measles causes really bad birth defects in babies. Uh, syphilis causes really bad birth defects in babies. Um, and so it's really, really important when we talk about those things that we also put into context. So fortunately, a COVID-19 uh, infection does not lead to permanent birth defects in your babies. But if you're sick, it certainly can compromise your health such that either you miscarry, it can compromise the pregnancy in that way. It may compromise the pregnancy such that it's not enough nutrients going to the pregnancy and that can result in a stillbirth. Or it may lead to baby needing to be born earlier than planned in order to help save mom's life. Given that, do you advise your patients who are trying to conceive at the moment and your pregnant patients, do you advise them to get vaccinated? I am. And I go over the risks with my patients and I advise them. I spend time answering their questions because understandably people have questions. We also spend time debunking myths because there are so many myths circulating when it comes to COVID-19 and fertility, COVID-19 and pregnancy. And so we spend time talking about those so I can explain why they're not true and they're really not true. And then also explaining how the vaccine benefits not only the pregnant person if they're already pregnant, but also how it positively impacts and benefits their babies. So fun fact, when a baby is born, its immune system is immature. It takes about six months for a baby's own immune system to mature enough that it can fight off anything it's exposed to. And so in fact, a baby that's born, most of the immunity in terms of antibodies, especially, that it's born with are antibodies that it got from the person carrying it, from mom. Those are antibodies that crossed the placenta and are now in baby's bloodstream. And that's known as passive immunity. 
And so it's really, really important that mom, that's why even when somebody comes in and they're planning pregnancy, we're looking to make sure that their vaccines are up to date. Uh, for some obvious reasons, we make sure their measles, their mumps, their rubella, their chicken pox is up to date because again, we want her to have immunity before she's pregnant so that her pregnancy is uncompromised and baby doesn't have birth defects. But similarly, it's also because we want her to have immunity so that she can pass that immunity over to baby so that in the baby's first six months, if baby were to be exposed to measles, mumps, rubella, COVID, baby's immune system would be able to help it fight and protect it from those infections. And so that's what I talk about with my patients and explain that. But I also recognize that not everyone is going to say yes to the vaccine. And so we talk about ways to remain safe, even if you don't get the vaccine, right? Ways to ensure that you're screening other people around you. Maybe emphasize getting everyone around you who's living in your living space, who works with you so that they get a vaccine. So they form a cocoon of protection around you. Um, because the truth is COVID-19 in a pregnant woman, it can have some really bad and adverse effects like we just described, meaning COVID-19 disease. And so that's why the vaccine is so helpful. It protects you, it protects your baby. Um, but if you ultimately chose to take the risk and not get the vaccine, then you should definitely make sure you're still wearing your mask, washing your hands, uh, minimizing your exposure and make sure as many people around you as possible get vaccinated. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And Dr. Cindy, I know I've got to let you go, but I wanted to know in general, do you think pandemic life has had a positive or a negative effect on the infertility experience? And I mean, kind of have fewer people wanted to get pregnant or have more people decided to freeze eggs and wait until another year, perhaps? It's mixed. We've seen a mixed profile. Uh, for some people, the pandemic brought a sense of urgency for family building. I think the thought of the world ending the thought for some of just being at home staring at your partner <laughs> was enough to say, hey, we need more people in this house. And so we saw some people returning to clinics. In my case, for example, I have patients I hadn't seen in two or three years uh, who had maybe done an evaluation in the past, but now they've shown up and they wanted to get started. They wanted to be pregnant. So we had that bucket of patients who it created a sense of urgency a sense of, you know, what is man, what is time, and let's let's work on this. Um, but for others, yeah, they unfortunately we know that um, a number of relationships have ended. I've certainly seen a number of patients who've come in for egg freezing, either because their long-term relationship ended because of the pandemic and distance, et cetera, or they were at home and they realized this isn't going to work <laughs> once they spend time around each other. And so we did see a rise in egg freezing and that's being reported nationally, where a lot more women have come in to freeze their eggs. I think also people have time to really investigate and learn more about fertility and the fact that, you know, you're born with all your eggs. You don't make new ones. And as you age, they go away. So we have that bucket of patients. But then the last bucket that we have 
were those patients who've historically had infertility and continue to struggle, but also were scared about the unknowns. And you know, now we know, right, the pandemic, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, the virus was first uh, described uh, in early December, 2019. And so it's now been long enough that we've actually had people who've gone full gestations, full term and delivered babies. So now I can say with confidence, it doesn't cause birth defects. It is safe here or there. We know now we have vaccines and very soon we're gonna have many therapeutics available. But at the peak, the height of the pandemic, the height of the unknowns, many people opted to create their embryos and freeze them until they knew more. Um, others opted to create the embryos and freeze them until they were financially in a more stable position, given that a lot of people were either furloughed or laid off from work. Dr. Cindy, this has been an education with those comforting words too. You're amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Health Hackers viewers and listeners, thank you for being with us. I will put links to Dr. Cindy's website and social media in the summary text that goes with this episode. If you're watching on YouTube, I'd love it if you hit subscribe for regular videos. And if you're watching or listening to this through Facebook, Spotify, or Apple, you can opt to follow the show there too. Until next time, bye-bye.